Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon on our 2.0 track. Well, since today is the last day of 2018, I thought that it would be nice to do a podcast that reaches everyone in the salon on the same day, and so I'm using the 2.0 track to publish this program. As you know, new programs on the Salon 1.0 track have been appearing on my Patreon feed first, and then they appear here on the classic RSS feed three months later. And I'm doing that, of course, to uh, give a little something extra to my supporters on Patreon, who are basically my bulwark against poverty these days. <laughs> However, uh, I also host a live version of this Salon every Monday night, and so in a few hours I'll be hosting a live Salon for my Patreon supporters. And even though tonight is New Year's Eve, I'll be here in the salon uh, visiting with some of our other fellow saloners who, like me, prefer staying home on nights when uh, so many drivers have had a bit too much to drink. But for those who can't make it to tonight's live salon, I'm going to play a recording of a talk that Shauna Holm gave a while back, but which my super filing system misplaced somehow. <laughs> when I came across it the other day, I gave it a listen, and I realized that, as in many of Shauna's talks, the subject matter is timeless. As you'll hear, her focus today has to do with the history of psychedelic medicines as seen through the works of prominent women in the field. This talk was given in July of 2015, and it is titled, Woman as a Visionary Plant Medicine Shaman. Although, uh, as you will hear in just a moment, she decided to change one word in it. But I'll let Shauna tell you that herself. So, all right, Woman as Visionary Plant Medicine Shaman. I really should have titled this Woman as Visionary Earth Medicine Shaman because I'm going to speak a little bit to plants, fungi and cacti, and we're going to kind of go back and forth in time. Uh, the Chukchi Eskimo uh, from northern Russia say that a uh, woman is by nature a shaman. And uh, I see the shaman as an intermediary between the worlds of the seen and the unseen. And uh, shaman serves their community, of course. They are a, a healer, seer, oracle, uh, prophet. And a uh, woman uh, has long taken on that role. There is a fabulous book by Barbara Tedlock, PhD, called The Woman in the Shaman's Body. And I'm so happy she wrote that book. She is a, an anthropologist and herself uh, an initiated uh, shamanic woman. And uh, she wanted to write a book and feature these women who she found in her research have really been uh, ignored through history. We know we have amazing male shamans, uh, but the uh, female shaman has been uh, uh, dismissed in many ways. Um, and it was simply the bias of the day uh, the great majority of anthropologists back in the day uh, were uh, men, and before them we had the uh, priests and whatnot. And so, uh, and then woman as visionary, 
medicine shaman. That is a, a woman who works with the visionary plants that will take you in very high trance states. Well, uh, those women were very special indeed, and so I'm going to speak of some of those women from the past and today. And uh, just real quick, Barbara Tedlock, uh, her definition of shaman, she writes, and I love this quote, shamans are seers, oracles, and oral poets, and their artistic language creates a healing path for their patients. And then Mircea Eliade says, quote, a first definition of this complex phenomena, and perhaps the least hazardous, will be shamanism equals technique of religious ecstasy. And so when I think of a technique of religious ecstasy, I think of high trance states that bring you into direct contact with the divine, uh, with the ancestors, with the uh, spirits of the uh, plant medicine that you are working with. And ultimately, uh, I see the shaman and the shamanic woman as a bridge. And so I chose this image. I thought that was just absolutely beautiful, uh, where the uh, shamanic woman will uh, take you on a journey of healing, uh, a journey uh, to profound self-knowing. It is, uh, she is a bridge, and the medicine is ultimately a bridge. I call it medicine or sacrament. Uh, it is a bridge to that plant, fungi, or cacti, and the intelligences behind it bridge to the ancestors, and ultimately uh, it brings us into uh, a deep place of uh, soul examination, if you will, coming to uh, deeply uh, know our soul. And so I think a very relevant question to ask right now would be, okay, that's all well and good, but what relevance does uh, the visionary shamanic woman have in uh, modern culture, really. How does that work? And so uh, let's just quickly uh, take a, a little look at um, our current reality, which I, I, I actually see as a kind of plague in many ways. And so here is a uh, typical city, and uh, cities are uh, places that are very crowded, uh, very rushed. We get a lot done in cities. Uh, people are, are, are very, very busy. Uh, they're also highly stressful. There is little to no connection with nature in the city and virtually no place to go where you can just be uh, experience silence. And, and I am always struck by the great crowds of people in cities and yet the uh, great numbers of desperately lonely people who live there. And then we have this aberration, which is rush hour traffic. And, you know, I think to myself, gosh, you guys, I mean, think how recent really this is. You know, I mean, we're used to it. We've grown up with this. But this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. And uh, I read in Forbes magazine that the average American, their commute time is 25 minutes each way. Uh, but for 10, upwards of 10 million people and over, that commute time goes up to two hours each way. And so that is no way to live. That's not living as far as I'm concerned. There's no time for uh, family or yourself. Uh, now we have this, uh, uh, the television. And the average American watches four hours of television 
a day. That's an average. And uh, I see TV really ultimately as the uh, wet dream of the oligarchy. <laughs> it is the ultimate tool of uh, uh, propaganda and the ultimate tool of mind control. And think about it. I mean, we all really have, since we've been children, we've been watching these, what do you call them? Programs. You know, that portray families in certain situations that, you know, are, we're supposed to think are kind of normal. And it's anything but. And uh, the late, great 20th century seer Bill Hicks once said that watching television is like taking black spray paint to your third eye. And I think that about sums that up. And then this next piece, I think this is an extraordinary image. And so technology, and now technology is indeed a double-edged sword, is it not? I mean, it's so fabulous in one way. It has brought us all together. Uh, I can record this talk. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And at the same time, my goodness, has it ever taken over our lives? And... Uh, Particularly our uh, teenagers, our children, are just this, have this constant uh, onslaught of, of uh, manufactured imagery and very little time to develop uh, their imagination. And not only that, but how often now do you go uh, out in nature and see people, and they're walking, but they're walking with their nose in their uh, uh, phone, yes? And so that film I keep thinking with regard to this is Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sullivan, or Sutherland. I keep thinking of that. Um, so, you know, I mean, great on one hand. On the other hand, um, it's really uh, tapping us out in a lot of ways, which brings me to uh, this, uh, antidepressants. And so in spite of all our quote-unquote modern uh, progress here, in the last two decades, uh, the use of antidepressants has skyrocketed upwards of over 400%. And Americans are taking antidepressants. For women in their 40s and 50s, that figure is one in four. And for adolescents, and teenagers, it's one in 25. And so back to that question of what relevance could the visionary medicine woman possibly have in today's modern culture? Well, I think that she is desperately needed. Uh, she provides, as a healer, seer, prophetess, oracle, if you will, uh, she uh, provides a catalyst, a very desperately needed catalyst uh, to assist people, I think, in my opinion, to call them back to themselves. And ultimately, I see this uh, growing interest, I would say growing thirst in people to experience these uh, visionary uh, plants, uh, ayahuasca, the mushroom, uh, the, the, the cactus, and, and more, uh, there is a thirst uh, for deep meaning and to connect directly to that meaning. And so uh, uh, there are certain uh, women who can assist people. There are, of course, men who do that as well, but I'm speaking today to the women. And this has long been the domain of women to provide that uh, so let's look at some of these um, ancient classes of women, uh, beginning with the, I would say, most famous, the oracles of Delphi. 
And uh, these women were a guild of very highly trained priestesses. And uh, they were uh, oracles, prophetesses. They were known for going into very high trance states and bringing through uh, information. Now, this uh, temple was around for over 1,100 years. It started as a temple dedicated to uh, Gaia. And then eventually, the Apollonian priesthood uh, imposed uh, uh, Apollo onto the temple. And so... Uh, it shifted to the Temple of Apollo. And so these women would go into these trance states and uh, call in the temple authority and allow themselves to be temporarily possessed and bring through this information. They would often speak very poetically. Uh, they would speak, that's where a hexameter came in. There's one uh, famous priestess who, who brought that through. And I will tell you that uh, for this place to have lasted as long as it did, I mean, the people who showed up to speak with these oracles were uh, people from every strata of society, including very high-ranking people. Now, if these ladies were full of shit, they would have closed that place down in a couple of months. So clearly, truly, they were, uh, they were in touch with something very powerful. And so the uh, most commonly... Uh, uh, thought uh, entheogen that they used was the sweet-smelling vapors of the ethylene gas uh, uh, that came up through the fissure in the floor of the adytum of their temple. And so they would sit on the tripod and the fumes would come up around them and they would inhale those fumes and it was thought that they would then go into these very high trance states and uh, be able to access the uh, access Apollo and so that's uh, one piece. Also, there was the sacred spring of the Casotis, uh, and that water plunged downward and again came up through the floor of the adytum of the temple, and so the priestesses would drink that sacred water. Uh, they used a variety of uh, libations and, and, and unguents. I will say uh, that the Greeks were, I would say, master pharmacologists, uh, just as the Egyptians were, uh, herbalists. I mean, they knew uh, the exact combinations, yes, to use for healing and also uh, this kind of visionary use. And so another thing that the uh, priestesses uh, chewed was uh, laurel leaves, and it was said that if you chewed the laurel leaves, that would take you into a communion with the deity. Another thing also it is thought that they used was uh, henbane seeds, and henbane actually was very sacred to the god Apollo. And so you would throw the henbane seeds into the fire and uh, the smoke from the henbane seeds would uh, bring you into uh, states where uh, you, know, you could bring through uh, revelation. And also, they uh, uh, drank a quote-unquote sanctified draught. And that was a psychoactive mead. And it was very common back in the day to drink uh, spiked meads. They were spiked with henbane and, uh, and other things. And, uh, but there was also a mead made from a psychoactive honey. And that was uh, taken from Rhododendron ponticum. And it still produces that psychoactive honey today. And I understand that in Greece they make darn sure to destroy those uh, beehives uh, when uh, that honey starts running. 
And uh, so in any case, so they drank this sanctified drought, which I love. There was a fabulous connection between the priestesses and the bees. And it was said that in the second incarnation of the Temple of Delphi, the walls were lined in beeswax and feathers. So I can only imagine how heavenly uh, it, that, that scent was. And so those are the oracles of Delphi. I'm just going to touch on these briefly. And then we um, uh, have the uh, Germanic people. And the pre-Christian North Germanic people were no strangers to shamanic practices and psychoactives. And there was a little passage in a heathen periodical called Tyr, T-Y-R, in the second edition. And they wrote, quote, We know that the German people added mushrooms to their ritual beer or mead. It is likely the mushrooms would imbue the drinker with the power of divine revelation. For those who drank in the circle saw the gods descend among them. And so uh, we have from that culture the Valva, and Valva was a shamanic seeress. And so Valva is the old Norse word that uh, translates roughly to wand carrier or carrier of the sacred staff. And so these were uh, very highly respected women, uh, and they would travel from community to community where they would be very warmly and respectfully welcomed, and they would be put up for the night and fed in exchange for uh, prophecy. And so uh, the Volvo would sit on a high seat, and uh, she would have others around her, and she would go into a high trance state and travel in uh, through the nine worlds and bring through uh, prophecy. And so they could also curse and they could bless and so they were both revered and I'm sure also feared. It was thought that they could change destiny itself. And so uh, warlords found these women very valuable. And it was actually often highborn women uh, who uh, took on this position and also very old women as well. And I have to say, that really struck me because as I look back on some of these older cultures, you see that many of them really treasured their women and they particularly treasured the women who were in touch with this, with really almost the untouchable. They were in touch with something that uh, it took training uh, to access. And so there was great respect for these women. And uh, so now uh, we'll get to the Celts, and this is the Celtic goddess uh, Ceridwen, and she's holding a cauldron, and the cauldron was a very sacred symbol to the Celts and central uh, to their religious practice, which I think is very interesting, because what do we do in cauldrons? We make brews in cauldrons, and so uh, she was... Uh, a goddess of uh, nature and fertility and herbs and uh, that cauldron was said to uh, be a cauldron of initiation and transformation which uh, leads me to uh, the obvious uh, understanding that the Celts too were working of course with these substances Uh, They didn't write anything down, so we don't have a whole lot to go on here. But of course, uh, the Celts were known as master storytellers, metal workers, musicians. Uh, They were very illuminated people and a pantheistic people. This is, I'm speaking pre-Christian Celts. 
And there is no question that their women were also, uh, uh, many of them, seers. And there is a, a Celtic woman uh, named Veleda who was, uh, uh, went sort of back and forth uh, between the uh, Germanic, she lived among the Germanic tribes, and she arbitrated between two Roman factions on either side of the Rhine around 69 to 79 AD. So we know these women uh, had status and uh, were uh, very connected. Uh, and, and of course, think of how important it would be you know, to find someone who had that power to divine uh, you know, for military strategy, but not just that, for day-to-day -day things, all the same reasons why we would seek out a good oracle if we could. Yes, uh, they brought through great wisdom for people, great wisdom, and they would connect them uh, with uh, ancestors, lost loved ones, um, and the like. And so uh, this is Tatiana uh, Urbakan, and she is a seventh-generation uh, Sami shaman, and, or rather from the Tungus tribe of Siberia. And so she works with fly agaric, and you can see her dress reflects the cap of that mushroom. And so uh, uh, her tribe and many other tribes in that region would work with that mushroom, um, and it would create a soul flight, and they would be able to then access the, the dead and uh, find out the causes for illness and how to heal that illness. And I will say uh, across the board that these uh, plants, fungi, cacti, have long been used to do just that. You would have someone very sick, and so the uh, CRS or healer would go into that high trance state and locate the uh, cause and often bring through uh, the ancestors, uh, sp helping spirits to assist. She, this woman, uh, was actually the subject of a documentary called The Song of Mukhomar, which is spelled M-U-K-H-O-M-A-R. And it's Tatiana Urkachan. And also, uh, the fly agaric mushroom was used uh, by native people in northern Canada and the Great Lakes region. And I'll just read you something I thought was very interesting. This also comes from uh, Barbara Tedlock's book. She writes, quote, A nine-year-old Ojibwe girl named Kiwai Dinokwa spent two years, 1925 and 1926, with a famous woman herbalist and midwife. During this time, she learned how to prepare various hallucinogenic and non-hallucinogenic mushrooms for healing. She was trained in the first three levels of the Great Medicine Lodge, or as she put it, quote, I was, I was medicined three times. At her initiation, she was given a single large cowrie shell tied on a leather string to wear under her shirt around her neck. She was also shown a pictographic birch bark scroll that recounted the origin story of fly agaric, known as Mesquito in Ojibwe, and considered the spiritual child of Grandmother Cedar and Grandmother Birch. Ojibwe shamans at that time prepared this mushroom by mixing it with a kind of blueberry juice, which strengthened its overall hallucinogenic effects. And by the way, also the North Germanic people, um, uh, they used uh, the, the vulva and, and others in the community, they used uh, henbane uh, and cannabis, uh, fly agaric was used there, but also blueberries. There was a, a symbiotic fungus that would grow sometimes on the blueberry bush, and it would create a hallucinogenic uh, uh, wine. They would add that to, to wine. 
Uh, and one other thing I meant to uh, say to you, um, in uh, Europe, in early Europe, I wanted to get back to Henbane real quick, uh, there was the, uh, uh, an ointment, uh, a flying ointment that the uh, women would cover themselves with, and it was composed of the nightshades uh, belladonna, datura, mandrake, and henbane, and that would be put in uh, like a pig fat, some kind of animal fat, and uh, kept uh, uh, kept aside. And then ritually, they would put it over their bodies and uh, even rub it on their genitalia because it would be absorbed in through those very sensitive tissues. And uh, because these nightshades were very poisonous. Uh, it would, was safer to rub this on your body and then it would take you on a shamanic soul flight. And actually, I just want to read you something that I found that I thought was uh, fascinating. This was written in 160 AD. We hear of the witches and they're you know, flying on their brooms you know, as a result of t- using that ointment. But this goes way back. Uh, 160 AD, this was written by Lucius Apuleius from Golden Ass, Book 3, and he wrote... On a day, Photis came running to me in great fear and said that her mistress, to work her sorceries on such as she loved, intended the night following to transform herself into a bird and fly whither she pleased. Wherefore, she willed me privily to prepare myself to see the same. And when midnight came, she led me softly into a high chamber and bid me look through the chink of a door, where first I saw how she put off all her garments and took out a certain coffer sundry kinds of boxes, all of which she opened, one, and tempered the ointment therein with her fingers, and then rubbed her body therewith from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head. And when she had spoken privily with herself, having the candle in her hand, she shaked parts of her body. And behold, I perceived a plume of feathers did burgeon out. Her nose waxed crooked and hard. Her nails turned into claws, and so she became an owl. Then she cried and screeched like a bird of that kind, and willing to prove her force, moved herself from the ground by little and little, till at last she flew quite away. And so uh, uh, Tatiana was uh, doing something very similar, just uh, using a a different uh, medium. And often these ceremonies were held at night. And uh, there is a very different quality to the night compared to the day. And it is said in some traditions that there are uh, very different spirits that come out at night. And when I get into my own uh, use of the uh, psilocybin medicine, uh, I, I also do it uh, only at night. And, and then um, this turning into a bird, I think, is also very uh, interesting uh, because the owl especially has long been associated with uh, women of this kind because, of course, the owl can see in the dark and the owl is a symbol of wisdom. And these women were known for their uh, great wisdom and their ability to uh, heal people, uh, not just physically, but also uh, their, their soul. Uh, there are many people with uh, uh, great problems, and um, these medicines will work amazingly. 
uh, addressing that. Now I want to speak a little bit to the uh, Mayan uh, use of these medicines. This is uh, the Mayan cosmic mother, Ishel, and I have a very uh, special connection with her. I worked for uh, a few years in the Yucatan with a very sweet and humble shaman, Miguel Angel, and, uh, and so I was initiated into her mysteries. And uh, so there uh, once on the island of Cozumel, that island was dedicated to Ishel, the cosmic mother, and the Maya called it Kuzamil, or place of the swifts. And uh, Maya women of all ages went to that island to learn the women's mysteries. And that included uh, uh, midwifery, uh, healing, prayer, astronomy. In fact, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, bishops wrote that the women of Cozumel uh, were master astronomers. And they had their own observatory and even their own uh, maps that they created. So uh, these women were very impressive. And twice in the life of a, a, a woman, she had to make the pilgrimage to this island. Uh, the first time at the beginning of her uh, menstrual cycle and the second time at the beginning of menopause. And the Bishop Landa uh, from the 15th century, referred to Cozumel Island as that infamous place of idolatry where many women go to for partition. And uh, there was a high priestess of that island, and she was uh, the voice of Ishel. She would prophesy, and she, uh, Ishel would speak through her, and she would uh, sit in a seven-foot-high clay uh, image of Ishel. And I can assure you that uh, they were working with the uh, visionary medicine. Uh, psilocybin was used uh, a great deal by these people. Uh, and there are mushroom statues all over uh, the Yucatan, Guatemala, uh, around these sites. They also uh, worked with uh, uh, psychoactive morning glory seeds. And in the 16th century Florentine Codex, uh, written by Bernardino de Sahagun, he spoke of the uh, use, copious use, of the psilocybin mushrooms and said that they would be served with either honey or chocolate. And they were used uh, at all the rituals and even coronations and even business meetings. And so uh, there's no question they were working with that. And also uh, there was a, a Mesoamerican mead called Belche, and that was made from honey of a stingless bee with water and the leguminous, uh, the bark from the leguminous balche tree, which was uh, psychoactive. And Christian Rach uh, uh, surmises that they also added other inebriants to that balche, like psychoactive morning glory seed and uh, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. So again, these people were master pharmacologists, yes, and so they knew exactly uh, what would create um, just, just the right uh, ungent to be, to be used. And let me make sure I haven't forgotten anything here. Well, also, they said, uh, they would say that uh, taking the mushrooms in particular uh, would allow the essence or the soul to leave the body. And, and so there is your classic shamanic soul flight and then could commune with the ancestors or the gods and goddesses. And then real quick, this is the... Uh, Red Queen, Lady Zakuk, 
and she ruled Palenque uh, about 1,100 years ago. Uh, they think through her, either her son, Lord Pakal, or he may have been her husband. But she, too, was known for going into high trance states and uh, bringing through prophecy. And uh, I will tell you just a quick story. I went, I led a group of women in the Yucatan a couple of years ago, and Palenque was one of the sites we were going to. I led this group with Miguel and Al, and I had a deal with Miguel and Al. I said, listen, when we get to Palenque, you take the group. I want to talk to the ladies at Cook. And so I was able to procure a little bit of uh, mushroom medicine, and I found a quiet place, and I took the medicine, and... Um, First, the bat, which is Lord Tots, flew over me, and then the jaguar, and then some darker spirits, and I just said, look, I don't want any trouble. I'm here to speak with the Red Queen. And, uh, and then, uh, before me, was this image of this woman, and she was reddish-orange, and she had a headdress of feathers, and in between each feather uh, was a serpent. And she was eyeing me, and they were eyeing me, and I knew in that moment, because I'd been working with the medicine long enough, that they were simply reading my frequency. And so when I travel like that, I open my heart, and, uh, and then we proceeded to have a conversation. And later when I got home, I did more research on her, and I found, I did not know this before, that she is always shown with a headdress of Quetzal feathers. And so that was just one of those lovely affirmations that you get from uh, spirit. So, uh, this kind of thing uh, was not without its dangers, and so just to uh, touch on briefly the uh, witch burnings, which um, uh, in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII uh, put forth a papal bull where he recognized the existence of witches, and he kind of gave the green light to the inquisitors to uh, move on them, and uh, to, uh, let me just find this here, to uh, quote... Uh, to proceed with, quote, correcting, imprisoning, punishing, and chastising such persons according to their deserts. And so that was uh, referred to as the Witch Bull of 1484, and we all know what happened next. Um, witches were uh, accused, now this is a perfect example of ancient propaganda, of having slain infants yet in the mother's womb, so using herbs uh, to abort a pregnancy, uh, and hindering men from performing the sexual act and woman from conceiving, so using herbs uh, for uh, 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 birth control. And, and also, uh, the flying ointment, back to that flying ointment made with the henbane and the belladonna and whatnot, um, I said that they would uh, put that in an animal fat and, and use it on their bodies, but the propaganda from this time uh, said, oh no, uh, that was made with the fat of unbaptized newborn babies, right? So, you know, you see how uh, the stigma has uh, 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 moved through time uh, of uh, witches or any kind of uh, woman who works with uh, the unseen, works with uh, something that sort of the rest of the folks aren't really necessarily in touch with. And I'm always interested to see kind of the carryover. And uh, I like to play with words. I like to look them up, and I like the older dictionaries. And there's a dictionary, uh, Webster's 1828 dictionary, I refer to quite a lot. And I thought, I wonder what old Webster uh, had to say about a shaman. And so just for uh, giggles, I looked it up, and sure enough, he says... Definition of a shaman. In Russia, a wizard or conjurer, 
who by enchantment pretends to cure diseases, ward off misfortunes, and foretell events. So very dismissive. And then I just thought, well, let's just see what he has to say about which. Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which. A woman who by compact with the devil practices sorcery or enchantment. And two, a woman who is given to the unlawful arts. Now, ironically, interestingly, in Lucerne, Switzerland, in the 16th century, uh, before they would torture and put some of these women to death, uh, they uh, gave them a, quote, draught of compassion, which ironically was composed mostly of henbane. And that was to take them in a completely different state so they wouldn't feel uh, the pain and, and torture. I thought that was very interesting irony. All right, so... Let's get on to this beautiful 20th century woman, Adonia Maria Sabina. She uh, was a Mazatec shaman in Oaxaca and uh, worked with the mushroom. At the age of 12, she and her sister went out and about, and uh, they found uh, mushrooms, and they ate them. And uh, they felt very strange, and they started to cry, and, and then they started feeling really good, and they both experienced this, this wonderful uh, feeling and they uh, came home later that day and told their mom, and uh, she forbade them from ever eating them again. So it was 20 years before um, Maria Sabina uh, worked with the mushroom again, and that was because her sister was very ill. So it came to her to use the mushroom, and uh, they work with them in pairs. And so she gathered 12 mushrooms, six for her sister and six for herself, and uh, and went in, and she said even though she was an illiterate woman, she heard herself reading and chanting from a book that had been handed to her. And now it is understood that uh, the uh, voice of the mushroom must be expressed, and it is the job of the uh, shaman, seer, uh, medicine person, to bring that voice through, uh, through uh, poetry or singing or chanting. And so uh, Maria Sabina would work with people and she would chant. And I have a little uh, piece of a chant, one of her many chants I'll read to you. It's very beautiful. So she would say, quote, Woman who waits am I. Woman who divines am I. Woman of law am I. Woman of the Southern Cross am I. Woman of the first star am I. For I go up to the sky. And then there was another Mazatec shaman, Irene Pineda de Figueroa. And she actually would work in tandem with her husband. Uh, but she too would chant when she was on the medicine. And uh, this is one of her chants. Woman of medicine and cures, who walks with her appearance and her soul. She is the woman of remedy and medicine. A woman who speaks. A woman who puts everything together. Doctor woman, woman of words, wisdom woman of problems. And so I, I'm just very touched by how empowered those words are. When these women work with this medicine, it's like they come into, I think, uh, the language of the soul, and they like realize their power, they own it, and they express it, and yet with, uh, I, I think, very deep humility. Now, 
This is Doña uh, Julieta de Casimiro. She is on the Council of the Thirteen Grandmothers, and she too is a Mazatec uh, curandera. And uh, she has, uh, she's born in 1936, and uh, she met her husband at 15 and at 17 got married, and her mother-in-law was a curandera and uh, initiated her into the medicine of the uh, Teno Kanakato, which is the sacred mushroom. And so she initiated her into that uh, medicine, and she's been working with it ever since. And for the last 40 years, uh, she's been working with people all over the world who come to her uh, for a mushroom ceremony, for uh, healing on every level, emotional, spiritual, uh, mental, physical. And uh, she's a very humble, beautiful woman. And she says, quote, For the work to go well, I am always invoking God. And then she says, quote, Because we don't have money for doctors, we heal ourselves with mushrooms. It is believed that God gave mushrooms to the peasants and to those who could not read in order for them to have a direct experience of him. And now, uh, oops. Oh, I don't have her here. All right. Well, I thought I had a picture. I will speak to her. She is a, a Diné medicine woman named Walking Thunder, and she is out of uh, uh, New Mexico. And she works with uh, peyote, and she writes that at the age of six, she had her first uh, peyote taste of peyote. And at the age of nine, she participated in her first formal peyote ceremony. Uh, uh, in the teepee with uh, uh, everybody. She's just nine years old. And um, when the, uh, hang on here, let me just find this here. When the roadman uh, came to her and handed her the staff, she was just a little girl. She was meant to pass it to the person next to her, but she reached out and she grabbed it. And uh, to the surprise of everybody, and then she didn't know any formal peyote songs, but one just came to her and she started singing it. And so the roadman smiled and he prophesied that she would become a very powerful medicine woman. And then the next formal peyote ceremony that she participated in, he was there again, and he proceeded to feed her a teaspoonful of peyote every half hour until she could take no more. And, for, uh, and then she was... She was in that space for a week and a half, and over the course of that week and a half, people from the community started uh, making their way over to her house and, uh, and visiting her for healings. And so she has grown to become uh, this, this very beautiful uh, healing woman. And so this next image is uh, a, a woman in Peru, uh, Borca Kafu, and Kafuk, Borca Kafuk. And she runs the uh, Yana Puma Healing Center in uh, Peru. And uh, she is the uh, chief healer there. Uh, she does the ayahuasca ceremony and sapo. And she oversees the dieta. And she masters, actually, in uh, removing um, uh, negative entities, if you will. And uh, I don't know her personally, but I know a woman who has taken groups to Peru and has worked with her a number of times and said she is the real deal and just doing beautiful work. So uh, now I want to just uh, look at a couple of women in our country. Um, this is pretty dicey, we know, because these substances are uh, 
illegal, and so uh, you know we have to keep it on the QT uh, because I think this is very important conversation to be having and to uh, bring this back, particularly the women's voice and particularly the medicine women's voice. Um, I've read plenty of academic tellings. Uh, this is really heart medicine, uh, and it has a profound effect on humanity. And so this is my friend La Lorian. And uh, I actually had a conversation recorded with her for Psychedelic Salon, so it's fine for me to speak of her. And she uh, has worked uh, very reverently with ayahuasca and with the mushroom. And she is an artist and a visionary, and she is uh, coming up with this very magical language. And she's a mentor, and she works with students at Evergreen College. Uh, she is just a fabulous woman, and she started recently uh, an eco-village uh, called Atlan in the Columbia Gorge. And so, for me, uh, she is a modern uh, medicine woman who works with the medicine and then uh, brings forth uh, that inspiration, brings forth that wisdom uh, and, and, and anchors it in a very beautiful way. So in other words, we have to sort of work with it as best we can, you know. Um, unfortunately, we cannot openly, right, invite you or, you know, young people or whatever to participate in the way that uh, these Oaxacan ladies are doing or these women in Peru. And so I'll just get into a little bit of my background. That's me as an owl. Um, <laughs> and so... I came to this medicine, uh, maybe, I, I call it medicine or sacrament, I just call it medicine. Uh, four years ago, um, uh, about a dozen years ago, I came, I found very organically the uh, practice of shamanism, if you will, uh, which happened very organically for me out in the desert in Arizona, actually. And uh, I didn't know anything about even what a medicine wheel was or the four direct, no, I really, nothing. And I ended up creating this during three days of fasting and silence when I was working with a teacher out there. And everything opened up for me. And uh, one of the speakers uh, earlier was talking about um, stomping the ground. And, and that was one of the things I did when I created this circle. Again, totally clueless, which I actually kind of like. Not having any sort of preconceived ideas of what this should look like, but just letting spirit you know, kind of speak through me, but I, I realized I have to wake the ground up to create this circle, and I, I was stomping the ground and slapping the ground and calling up spirit, and, um, and this beautiful uh, circle was created, and so I never looked back, and, uh, and then so I worked with uh, um, some very lovely teachers, and I think of them as uh, the kind of um, shamans who are very quietly doing good work, very humble, not there's sort of what I think of as rock star shamans or paper shamans. There's a lot of those, but these guys are really good guys, um, and they've uh, taught me well. And uh, my one sweet teacher, Miguel Angel, said to me once, Shana, I am not giving you this to open you to my power or my lineage. I am giving you this information to open you to your own power. And, and, uh, and so he, he certainly has. And so four years ago, the mushroom was calling me uh, very loudly and I do not drink alcohol, I don't smoke pot, I mean I just don't do anything sort of quote unquote recreational. So my only approach that I knew for this was through uh, reverence and it was up in the Olympic rainforest at night in this mossy wild forest and I did a high dose lying down in the dark, eyes closed 
and I didn't know what to expect, uh, but I received a powerful healing that night where the earth spoke to me, and, uh, and I went home and I was just haunted by this, because I realized this is a portal. This is a portal, it is ancient, and it is a mystery, and I felt deeply humbled and grateful to have had the, uh, first of all, training behind me, and I felt like I've been preparing for this my whole life, and then I had to do it the following month. I went up there again and did it, and then I went back the following month and the next month, and, and it ended up being a year of monthly shamanic immersions into uh, that medicine, very high doses, and you know, after a while you realize, um, okay, this is a soul's calling, because there aren't that many middle-aged ladies in the suburbs, you know, running out to the forest to do, you know, five grammars and whatnot in the dark. Um, So, um, and what was happening to me cumulatively was the nature spirits were speaking to me, and then they started entering me and temporarily possessing me. And then, which it haunted me reading you that piece from 160 AD of that woman who then made the owl sound, because that was the first sound I made, was the sound of an owl. And I proceeded to have a conversation with an owl that was on a nearby tree, back and forth. And so over the course of that year, the owl came to me more and more um, until it finally announced itself as my medicine. And so, again, the owl being uh, one who sees in the dark. And I I find that there are a great many men and women who are uh, uh, feeling called to the owl. And I think that is because we have been in the dark, quote-unquote, for quite some time. And so what everyone in this room is calling back is something that was, I think, taken from us a long time ago. Um, We've been very seduced by this artificial construct that I briefly touched on at the beginning of this talk. And we are calling this back. Uh, This is what has been missing. And uh, being in touch with the sacred, in touch with nature. And so that is what this medicine has done for me. And this is an image by my friend Tara Holcomb, who is a visionary uh, artist, photographer. And... um, So I love this because it speaks to me of immersing or merging with nature. And Rudolf Steiner once said, if you want to know a tree or a flower, you must merge with it. And certainly uh, these medicines, these sacraments, if you will, well, you you ingest them and, 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 and you become them. And what has happened for me over the course of time, it has come to me that, of course, uh, in a sense, in a sense, I am the medicine. And the medicine has said, you no longer need to take me. You're welcome to come and visit. We love to sit and visit with you. But in other words, you know, that training was done. And I will say also, I didn't have a good shaman to initiate me into this. Nature initiated me and let us all, of course, I don't have to say that to this crowd, but not underestimate the power of nature to initiate us. And I sense that what is happening with these medicines and this thirst of people to experience this is that nature, I call her mama, is calling us back. She's calling us back to her through her plants and, uh, and uh, helping us to heal our soul because I think the greatest sickness on this planet is a soul sickness. The people have lost themselves entirely. They have lost uh, touch with nature and their own human what? Human nature. Yes? So, uh, 
very, very uh, important and something that uh, we, once, we once had, but I see it coming back as that merging with nature. Uh, and then I will touch just real quick on the Fae, uh, uh, being a Celtic uh, woman, um, because, and I don't talk very much about this, because whatever anyway, but um, this is also what happened over the course of that year was the fairy folk uh, would come in and speak to me and speak through me, and so uh, that has been very profound. And, and so you can think of them as like the over-lighting devas of the plant world. And uh, they have much to teach us. And they have taught us for a long, long time. There's a wonderful book called The Fairy Folk in Celtic Countries by W.Y. Wentz. And this man in 1909, thank goodness, like an anthropologist, he walked around uh, Ireland and Scotland in the Isle of Man uh, basically interviewing uh, people who had had experiences with the Fae. And he would make sure from the townsfolk that these people weren't out of their minds, you know, make sure they are of sound mind. And then he uh, uh, recorded all of what they had to share. And so uh, the fairy faith, if you will, uh, was... The, the Catholics couldn't knock it out of the Celts. They couldn't do it. They never lost that connection. And I, of course, what is associated with mushrooms? Fairies, of course. And so uh, there's a, a very wondrous relationship I have there. And so I'll finish with this beautiful image, uh, again, by my friend uh, Tara, because it speaks to me of a woman as conduit, for the uh, sacred waters of wisdom, uh, of gnosis, to uh, how what perfect timing uh, uh, to 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 come through um, and and to be that vessel to carry that and and then having the wings to uh, take that outward. And so I will tell you that ever since I've been working with medicine, well, no, after my first year of working with the medicine in that way, uh, I was saying how. Uh, the mushroom wishes to be expressed and it is the job of the uh, CRS uh, the shaman to bring that voice through in some way well uh, I have been writing poetry I never wrote poetry before and, uh, and especially when I go into the woods the trees will speak to me and uh, this poetry comes in and I rush home and I type it out and so uh, lately, I would just call in a poem. And so uh, this past week, Thursday night, I sat down and I asked, what I call them the beings, I asked, please, will you please give me a poem to share with these beautiful people at this conference uh, that will work well, you know, to end my talk. And so a poem came through, and it's called The Oracle. And so I would invite you to just mm, shift states of consciousness a bit and, and open, uh, because ultimately I see poetry as a language of the soul, and it really is an altered state, and we once spoke very poetically. All right. The seers of old knew our kind well, as dust-covered books will surely tell. They journeyed to worlds not known by their folk. They put forth their offerings and with courage spoke 
with respectful intention to gently commune, to taste of the magic that comes when the moon shines brightly, its luminous light on the glen, where the mushroom caps gleam in the brightness, and then she picks just the ones that whisper and call, and ritually eats them, stems and all. And behold, it appears the door to the sages who've spoken through oracles down through the ages. The seer approaches with heart open wide, light as a feather with nothing to hide. She bears her soul bravely and ventures to ask if entry is possible so she can bask in the secret and mystical ethers of knowledge where keepers of wisdom hold court in a college known only to those whose hearts betray their burning desire to learn the ways of legendary mythical beings of story whose noble exploits brought power and glory to people who've long left this planet behind. Yet still, there are those who wish to find the beauty that once was known to so many. The oracle asks if it's possible any good spirit can make itself known to her now. And lo, comes the owl in soft, silent flight, its great wings shimmering in the moonlight. Then standing before the oracle's eyes is a lady in white who doesn't disguise her love and affection for this noble priestess whose training spans lifetimes that highlight her prowess as alchemist, herbalist, woman who heals, as prophetess, seer, and woman who kneels on the sacred ground where the roots of the tree plumb deeply beneath her and lead her to see the ancestral inhabitants living below who take her hand and help her know the source of her own roots held by the earth that shows her the memories she had before birth. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And so I have to ask, do you think that you had any memories before birth? (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question, but one that can't be definitively answered by us uh, here in Flatland, I'm afraid. Perhaps a better way to phrase this question is to ask you if you have ever had a feeling that you weren't just here to bounce around from place to place and person to person. Have you ever felt that maybe you have some sort of a destiny yet to fulfill? Well, I must admit to having had that feeling myself from time to time. Of course, as that old U2 song goes, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. (laughs) Now, I realize that maybe that sounds a bit strange to some of our fellow saloners who maybe think that my various careers and adventures have provided me with some sense of closure about this feeling of destiny that seems to haunt so many of us. But the bottom line is that you and I are very much alike. Now, in my case, having been raised in a somewhat strict Catholic family, when I first became acquainted with the concept of destiny, I thought that it meant that there was this specific plan just for me. The priests and nuns told me about this invisible being that they believed in and that he had fixed my destiny even before I was born. 
And this was definitely a he who was in charge. You know, uh, in the Catholic Church, the men are in charge and uh, the women do all of the hard work. (laughs) Not unlike the rest of the world, is it? Of course, the idea that the one and only supreme being had a personal interest in me, well, it made me feel really important. At least it did until I realized that their idea of God's plan for me was for me to pass up on the pleasures and joys of this life in the anticipation of some unknown future existence that, well, that they firmly believed would begin once I died. It took me many years to overcome this brainwashing. Today I no longer base my decisions on the possibility of a non-earthly existence. I prefer to remain in the here and now, and I'll take my chances with the possible afterlife once I die. I shouldn't have to point this out, but these days are far, far, far from being in any way to be considered normal. Not only does the American emperor have no clothes, he has no mind either. President Bonespurs is a complete and total moron. You know, he isn't even qualified to be a Cub Scout leader, let alone the most powerful person on the planet. And this insanity is now being played out in the main ring of our human circus. I realize that uh, many people seem to think that in another two years, after the next elections, we'll have different people in charge and everything will go back to being normal. Well, guess what? Things are never going to go back to the way they once were. Not only has the U.S. system of government descended into unworkable madness, the entire world has also begun a period of readjustment that is of a magnitude that hasn't been seen for many centuries. The best part is that you and I are alive not to just witness this vast wave of change that's rolling over the world. We're also players in this unfolding drama. Now, you may think that I'm being a bit melodramatic here, and the reason I say that is because, (laughs) well, I think so myself. But maybe this isn't the right time to be ultra cool. Maybe we should get more excited about this great shift in humankind that has already begun, because if people like you and me don't become engaged in the change of consciousness that's sweeping over our species right now, well, we're in danger of being swept under ourselves without ever having sung our own songs. I no longer believe that our destiny is something that was assigned to us when we were born. I happen to believe that our destiny is ultimately what we make of our lives. And now, my dear friends, now is the time, the time to stand up and be counted. So let's make 2019 a year to remember. And if we do it right, I think that it can be a lot of fun as well. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.